Meredith Lee is an ex-vegan, now butcher, a butchery teacher, an author, a kitchen experimenter extraordinaire and a meat fermenter, co-founder of the Fermentation School and a mum. She has so much to share and this is an intimate and engaging conversation. We cover some really important questions including conscious animal slaughter, Meredith's transition from veganism to ethical meat, the safety worries around fermenting meat and the one we get so many questions about, nitrates in meat. Patrons of the podcast, check your private feed for a moving after show where Meredith reads a piece from one of her books. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome to Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. And I'm here with Andrea today. You might hear I'm a little bit nasal. I'm just getting over a cold. And thankfully, we have Andrea and a wonderful guest. So you'll be hearing a lot from our guest. So Meredith Lee is an author, um, a butcher, a teacher, a mum, a fermenter, um, most notably a meat fermenter, and also co-founder of the Fermentation School where regular listeners will know I've got several courses and you can go and find lots of amazing women fermenters who are sharing their knowledge online with the world. So we've got so much to talk to you about, Meredith. Um, Both of us have had a look at your book and I feel like this, if you're willing, will be the the first of lots of interviews because you've got so much knowledge. And we're going to kind of dip into both of your areas of speciality so your experience in butchery and then your experience in meat fermentation and then we will as we go through we'll point listeners to where they can go a bit deeper the first question we ask all our guests is what is the last thing that you ate Hmm. um the last thing that I ate was a spoonful of cinnamon almond butter (laughs) because I just got home from a run. I'm training for a marathon and I just got home from a run and popped onto the podcast. So I, <laughs> I swallowed a spoonful of almond butter. It's not very impressive. Sorry. Wow. When's the, when's, when's the marathon? Uh, we're aiming for the spring, but right now we're just doing a long six month train, which has me running four times a week and trying to squeeze it in in the mornings before the work day. So it's fun. Okay. And and um, I'm intrigued as to whether you're eating differently because you're running so much. You know, I probably am eating more carbohydrates than I normally would, um, but otherwise mostly the same. I tend to not eat a lot of gluten, but right now I, I'd say I'm eating more. Mm. Okay. And did you run on an empty stomach? <laughs> I did. Wow. Yeah. I only did a small run this morning. I used to, I used to do that. Um, before my son was born, we used to go out for cycle rides early nice. in the morning because it was always too hot in the summer uh-huh. here to go out after about seven. So we used to go out about five in the morning and I used to do those on an empty stomach. And I remember the difference, kind of that feeling of having exercised on an empty stomach and then coming back and eating, Yes, feeling completely different, you know, a different way to start the day. Yes. I think it's not so great for hormone health. I think um, what I try to do when I'm doing my longer runs is definitely eat beforehand and then let myself digest for a while before mm. exercising. Yeah. Before you mm-hmm. head out. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's dive into butchery. You are a butcher and you also teach butchery workshops and a large portion of your book, The Ethical Meat Handbook, is dedicated in depth to butchery. Mm-hmm. Andrea, you um, you do butchery at the farm, and I know you were butchering a lot of turkeys yesterday. Do you want to kick off with Meredith on the butchery side of things? 
Yeah, I'm so, so excited to talk about this and or to hear you talk about it. So we have a really big range of listeners where I know you were a vegetarian and then for nine years and then mm-hmm. vegan for two years, Meredith. And um, we have a range of listeners who are raising and butchering their own animals to vegan mm-hmm. listeners. And um, a lot of former vegetarian vegan listeners as well, including right. Allison. Um, so one thing that we've talked about a lot in our patron group is encouraging our listeners who are, um, eating meat, you know, to be more participatory in the butchering process. And some of them are going out to farms like my farm and, um, watching or participating Mm -hmm. in butchery. Um, and we just really want to encourage them to get more involved in the process. And it is a skill that I feel like used to be pretty ubiquitous in communities. Uh, at, at least everybody had seen it or participated mm-hmm. in some level. Uh, and it seems like a lot of people, you know, they, if the meat isn't wrapped in plastic, they're kind of nervous about it. Or if it has a face, mm-hmm. they're really scared, you know? And so I just feel like you're the perfect person to talk to Mm -hmm. all of us about this because you've been through the full range. And I'm curious about things that helped you move into being an ethical meat eater uh, from being a vegetarian and vegan before. And if you could also mention if your vegetarianism was more, I mean, I know both, but if it was more because of you were concerned about ethics or if it was more for your health. And um, yeah, if you could just sort of expound yeah, on Yeah, I could expound on this for days. Take, take us through your thought process. <laughs> yeah, so, so okay, I got to figure ready. out where to start, but maybe I'll start with that, just sort of my evolution of understanding and practice, um, because I still maintain that uh, it's a personal choice and that regardless of what anybody tells you is the best for your health or the environment, it's still your decision about what's best for you. Um, and so I, I started, I embarked on vegetarianism out of political aggravation and emotional like despair for animals and environmental concern. So it was really like a, all the things all the reasons. And I guess I, I guess eventually at some point on that journey, I believed that it was better for my health. Um, but that wasn't how it started. Uh, I thought it was a, it was a form of activism. And I also lived in a city and was very detached from earth. Um, I didn't understand very much about food and nature was something that was like over there and needed to be saved. Um, and mostly the way to save it was to leave it alone. Um, and I had posters, right? Um, and I think, you know, that I was very young and I was very angry <laughs> um, and very opinionated. And I think, you know, I see now that that was just a way for me to learn, right? The angst, the passion, um, was just a way of getting in there. Uh, and it was just the beginning for me. Um, when I went to college, I went on a scholarship to a school called Warren Wilson College here in the mountains of North Carolina and didn't really know what I was getting into. It was mostly in my mind, like a hippie school. Uh, and I didn't really know what was going on there, but it, it's historically a farm school. And so there's a lot, there's a deep, appreciation for the land there and a deep um, social priority on farming and forestry. And yeah, like the kids who are involved in the farming and the forestry on campus are the cool kids (laughs) or were when I was there, which was very interesting to me as a city kid um, stepping into that kind of environment. But I definitely got curious. I went into college as a creative writing major. I've always been a writer Um, that I left as an environmental science and sustainable agriculture major because I discovered gardening and farming 
And really it's healing capabilities, not just for the soil and for the land, but for people. And realized that that was what I wanted to write about. And I was still vegetarian. I think that was actually at the beginning of my veganism. Um, And so, yeah, I had a greater understanding of land at that point and certainly agriculture and where food came from. But I still had this opinion that um, vegetable agriculture would be what saved the world and that animal agriculture was over there and horrible and the problem and um, all we had to do was get back into gardens and on farms and grow lots of vegetables and we'd be good. <laughs> um, and then I think the next chapter that I would cite in that journey was my travel abroad and specifically to Vietnam, where I was staying with a female farmer in the north of Vietnam and she was a farmer. She was farming not only rice and vegetables, but she also had in her rotation water buffalo. And the water buffalo were used for milk. They were used to plow. Um, the children rode them to and fro, um, and they also harvested them for meat. And I witnessed an integrated system where the animals and the plants were raised together. And the animals were providing fertility and enzymatic, you know, activity on the land that was in turn creating a thriving ecosystem for not just plants, but birds and, you know, other critters. And I was fascinated by that. It really opened my eyes. Um, The other thing is that witnessing animals being raised in a subsistence manner like that really changed my understanding of animals' roles, not just on the land, but also in relationship with people. Um, And the significance, the cultural significance of meat in the space of Loy's diet, that was the the woman's name, was it wasn't prioritized or, or lionized like meat often is in the United States, but it was integrated just like the animal was integrated into the farm. And in Vietnam, it's a gesture of friendship to place food in another person's bowl. So when Loy reached across and placed a piece of water buffalo in my bowl, I couldn't very well say I'm a vegan and I can't eat that. It was a gesture of friendship and solidarity. And so I ate it. And I think that that's a really powerful story. It didn't feel as powerful to me at the time. It felt scary, but it really planted a seed inside of my mind about how the human relationship with animals is multifaceted and how divided we've become from these creatures who not only play a pivotal environmental role, but they also play a role in our understanding of ourselves. Um, And then I think the last, so, so I started eating meat at that point and I came back to my own farm and integrated animals into that farm and went on an entire journey of, of learning at that point, how to care for them, how to allow them to act out their natural tendencies without losing money (laughs) when I was in business, how to harvest them, how to make best use of the carcasses, um, how to overcome my own fears of mortality that came up when I was inside of those processes. And it really helped me grow as a person. It really helped me understand myself and my role on the planet. Um, And I think the last thing I would cite in my journey of understanding is I went through a really terrible divorce wherein I lost my farm and I lost my butcher shop and um, I went through a death process. It was very much a process of, of taking everything in my life down to, to gravel and figuring out what I was going to keep and what I was going to rebirth. And the richness of that process and the sacredness of that process, I was able to connect that to to my work and understand that this fear of death and this inability to approach death as part of the life cycle is um, a piece of human consciousness that is, is broken and has been twisted by the dominant culture. Um, and it has huge implications for how we interact with, with the earth and each other and animals. And so I know that's a lot, but I would say that like what, what my work and what my experience in life has done is really helped me figure out how to integrate some of 
the things that we're most comfortable, uncomfortable with about our diets into a real way of helping us understand who are we, why are we here, and why do we believe what we believe? Questions yeah. like that. That's amazing. That's, yeah, I want to go back to each sentence and then ask you to pick it apart because that was so fascinating. And that's really the most intense way to, that, that's amazing that that was how you were invited back into the meat eating world was with Lloyd putting that water buffalo in, in your bowl. And I feel such an affinity towards our vegan and vegetarian listeners because I think it's remarkable how committed they are to avoiding the cruelty towards animals that obviously still bothers mm -hmm. you to this day. <laughs> As a meat eater, you've chosen a completely different path than the standard American meat role. Right. So... <clears throat> that's I, that's that's amazing and it is really interesting how you saw the integration of life with the animals which growing up in almost any other time or place in the world you would have seen right. from a young age which is interesting yeah I mean I what we can yeah just to comment on that quickly I'll say that I I absolutely understand um, not wanting to participate in the death of animals, especially when we don't feel our relationship with them. Right. And I think that there's, yeah. I think that there's, and that, and that's a little bit counterintuitive. I think that there's a predominantly in the United States, especially a mindset of, I don't want to be in relationship with them. And also I don't want to kill them and eat them. But I think that the real, the yeah. actual disconnect yeah. is when, when we had systems and all of our ancestors had systems of sacrifice and reciprocity tied up in their diets that were very relational, right? And so when hunting happens or when slaughter happens, it's recognized as an energy exchange of which we are participants and we have to not only be reverent and thankful and thrifty and thorough and mindful, um, but we also have to give something back and regenerate the system, right? Whereas now it's very detached. There is no relationship. And so, yes, like the death act or the slaughter act, I think it can seem and is, especially on in the industrial scale, um, yeah, completely against, you know, the, the, yeah, the constitution of a living being, right? And so I completely get it. And I completely have compassion and space for those who, who are, are with veganism and vegetarianism for that reason. Yeah. If you're into ancestral eating, you'll know that liver is a superfood full of vitamin A, K and a whole host of B vitamins plus many essential minerals. It has a truly exceptional nutrient profile and is a staple of traditional healthy diets. But it's not always as easy to get liver into our lives as we want. Getting a good supply, knowing how to cook it so it actually tastes good and getting all of our family to eat it. These things can be hard, especially when we're busy or traveling. That's where Andrea and I turn to liver capsules. They give us the incredible benefits of liver without having to worry about the sourcing, the preparation, or the eating. One Earth Health produces organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. As a podcast listener, you can get 5% off and free shipping by using the link oneearthhealth.com forward slash ancestral kitchen. And each time you order, you'll also be supporting us to keep on making the podcast. Details and the link are in the show notes. In, in our culture also, it seems interesting. I think it's the same where Alison is at, or at least in the UK, but we're so separated from death generally. You know, we a lot of people have never sat with a human while the human passed. A lot of people have never seen an animal 
being killed. And it's just interesting that we're so separated from it. And whenever Allison and I spent a fair, or we spend a fair amount of time reading older texts and things like that, and the intimacy people had with death, you know, even to the extent of not naming children until they're two years old and things like that is insane because they just, death was all around all the time and there was no hiding from it. Mm -hmm. And now we have the illusion that, you know, we can extend our life unnaturally, even with technology and things like that. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's very interesting to me how much the question of our own death is wrapped up in the question of the animal's death. And, and I think, yeah, so death does two things yeah. in dominant culture. It's either hidden and avoided or it's um, hyper, hyperbolized, right? So like in media yeah. and films, yeah. death is always violent, you know, almost always violent. And so <laughs> it's either horribly violent or it's non-existent in the mind. So it's, again, the binary. So I'll talk about the binary a lot. <laughs> probably today, but the either or thinking Mm -hmm. that's so pervasive in our culture. And when I say our culture, I mean dominant culture, usually white supremacy culture. (laughs) Um, And so I, you know, I see that, um, you know, what I've observed and when I've been able to help people or steward their experience through a slaughter process of an animal, we talk about this and talk about how what we can notice is if we are mindfully approaching the act that there is um there are some key moments to witness in in that process that we have to pay careful attention to and what we might even notice is that the dying being is the most peaceful among us um Mm -hmm. and that it's the living Mm -hmm. who are bringing the fraughtness to the dying process. And I think, you know, that's certainly not the case on the mass scale that we make food happen um, in dominant culture, but uh, I think it's worth it's worth noting in human and animal death. Yeah. Definitely is interesting. And something that um, we've talked about with our kids who all, all participated in the process is um, animals, some some humans, like you said, we go in with this resistance to the idea, but animals seem to, like this is, this is an animal's role in nature. Um, you know, the gazelle is caught by the lion or whatever. And <clears throat> I don't know, animals seem more to recognize what happens or where, where things go. I believe, I absolutely believe that there is a moment of surrender when you're in conversation with an animal and performing a slaughter, if you are fully present. Um, And and that's one of the Mm -hmm. things I've been very firm about. Like, I won't do it if I'm not fully present. If I feel distracted, if I feel angry, if I feel like the the situation hasn't been ideal in terms of you know, getting the animal into my, into my arms. Right. And, and like away from its herd, like those kinds of things. And I'll, I won't do it. But I think when, when the conditions are, are right, um, I experience a moment where the animal does know that I'm its predator and it surrenders. Yeah. Yeah. Which it, it it does in nature. Anybody who's sat and watched National Geographic. You don't even have to be outside to see that. People ask me sometimes, like, we we choose to name. We name a lot of our animals. We don't always name all the birds, but we name a lot of our animals. And then <clears throat> people are sometimes horrified that I put the name on the package <laughs> when I package the meat. Because I, well, I like being able to, oh, this mm-hmm. was Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. You know, really appreciate this. And, um... Sometimes people say that, you know, that kind of surprises them or they say, oh, was this animal so violent? So you're just happy to kill it. And I told them, actually, if it if I have a problem with an animal, like an animal's made me angry or something, or I felt angry about something an animal did, I should say, 
um, I don't want to butcher it. And I, like you, I've, I've been upset at an animal, like maybe it like chased to beat one of my kids or something. And I don't, I, ha- I, I told them, I consciously don't want to feel like I'm revenge killing an animal. I want to wait until the time is right or let my husband do it. One or the other. Um, yeah. And I'm, yeah. Because I do, I do feel that what you said. I, I feel that, that goes back to the fact that you're in a relationship with the animal. Like what you're talking about is a relationship. Yeah. You know, and, and like, I think. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, a, like there's a huge amount of privilege in that, that, that to recognize because like, think about people, the conditions of working in the industry, you see lots of videos of people really mistreating mm. animals and you can see that they themselves yeah. are full of anxiety yeah. and miserable in the conditions where they're working. And I've been yeah, into those working sure. conditions and, and, and you can feel the anxiety in the air and you can feel the illness in the mm-hmm. air. Um, and so, wow. you, you know, giving compassion to those people rather than calling them evildoers um, and understanding that the entire system that yeah. they're wrapped up in, both the people and the animals, is really brutal. Um, and then when, yeah, we have the ability to homestead or if we happen to be individuals who can um, take our time and be in relationship. I think that that's really special. And then secondly, I think, um, yeah, that the going back to when I was young and because I was so frustrated with what I felt humans were doing to nature, right? That we were over here and nature was over there and we were messing it up and we were extracting from it. Then because of my really well-trained binary mind, the solution was leave it alone, right? Um, and I think that that's very, mm, yeah. that's very much still pervasive in modern day environmentalism is, okay, well, we've, we've done too much, yes. we've taken too much, it's out of balance. And so the answer is to leave it alone. And, and in, in a sense, what we're saying when we say that is we are not going to be in relationship. We are not participating Right. I don't think we realize consciously that we're saying that. But when we say leave it alone, let all the land rest, um, let all the herbivores go. Right. Instead of saying, let's get into vigorous participation with these landscapes and these animals um, and figure out what is the relational way of reciprocity. Then, you know, I think somebody like you who is doing that yeah, giving the animal a name makes perfect sense, right? Because you want you want to you want to be able to not only trace the story and the lineage of the food and the nourishment, but also give thanks. But I think that that I understand why within the binary framework of how we think about caring for the earth and doing food, that feels like the opposite of the answer to some people. Do you know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. I know what you're saying. And I, it's interesting your choice of words because Joel Salatin calls it the difference between what, what he terms abandonment mm-hmm. environmentalism versus participatory mm-hmm. environmentalism, which I think is profound, especially in the landscapes that I've seen. And as um, when I was new to forest, I mean, I had always grown up in the Northwest, but I didn't see the forest, if you know what I mean. And when I was new to forest, I was like, oh yeah, this forest looks really nice. It should be left alone. And now I see it and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's a chaotic monoculture mm-hmm. mess. And it needs to be engaged with because it's not, you know, mm-hmm. just see it differently. <clears throat> the more you yeah. get into something. And I wonder if, do, do you also feel like part of the, something I've noticed that, <clears throat> sometimes produces resistance in people is the humanizing of animals or as will harris says the only relationship many people have ever had with an animal is a companion animal Mm -hmm. like a dog or a cat and so there's a a loss of translation when you say yeah that you just went out and butchered your cow that you've had for three years and that you know you raised from a calf and named and everything and they're like how could you do that? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think there's so many things going on, but certainly one of them is, yeah, the projection of self onto the animal, 
right? Especially if the animal has like yeah. eyelashes and, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's like different with chickens than it is with lambs, for example, <laughs> you know, for people. Uh, yeah. Right. Oh, rabbits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's a lot of, um, yeah, thinking we know what the animal's experience is, A, and then B, like projecting mm. our, and, and protecting our ego, onto animals is something that's Mm. very pervasive. And I think it's really important to remember. And one of the reasons that animals are what I would say is closer to God than humans are, you know, there's this pervasive mentality that people who kill animals or people who eat animals believe that humans are higher beings than animals. But if you go back into ancestry, you go back into indigeneity, animals were connected to the spirit world. Animals, all animals had a spirit. That doesn't mean that we didn't eat them. It was just that we were more conscientious and reverent right. and and uh, mindful about the relationship of reciprocity and our connection to the animal, right? And I think that the important thing to realize, like in our modern, more modern scientific terms, like one of the reasons for that is that animals don't have egos. <laughs> they don't possess the right. self-importance and, um, that humans do, some cats, some cats do. <laughs> well, I think, you know, they do give <laughs> off that vibe, but, you know, I, yeah. who knows? But like, you're right. do, do animals you're right. think of themselves yeah, or are animals conscientious in a way that, hu- in a way that humans aren't? And I'm not saying conscientious would be the wrong word for it, but basically what my point is that the human consciousness is a trap that makes us think that we're separate from everything, Right when everything yeah. is connected, there yeah. is no other. There is no individual. Which is weird because we live, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we live on the planet with nature. I don't know why people are like leave nature. We alone. are nature. You are a yeah, part of absolutely. Nature, so. And so, and that's the thing <laughs> too is like everything that. we do is of nature. Even the terrible things that we do is of nature. And so, what are you going to do about it? You know what I mean? Instead of saying I will cause no cataclysm, the question is. Of all the cataclysms that I caused, from like stepping on the soil to slaughtering a cow, how does that work itself into the entire fabric of how I live as nature? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 mentality of like we're here and nature's over there, and so we've got to leave it alone is is then that's separateness, that sense of separateness, I think is causing more problems than vigorous participation and acknowledgement of the fact that we have an impact inherently. And that, that was really driven home to you with, with Loy, right? Because suddenly you were like, wait, she's in nature. She's participating, if you will, with nature, with the animals and the plants and the food in your bowl. And, yeah. and this doesn't work without one yeah, of the I think pieces it's been, it's been which drilled into me over and over again city. throughout my career like the people that I have met the farmers I have spent time with particularly farmers with closer cultural ties to indigeneity have shown me that their cosmology and their understanding of the world the planet and humans as an organism on that planet is so much bigger than um yeah, this life or death or this apocalypse or that apocalypse. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really big. It's really big. Allison, I'm curious if you have questions or thoughts on this as well. So, so many thoughts so on, like you said, I want to pick apart everything. I wanted to, um, <laughs> just one of the last things I scribbled down was I feel like the the kind of extractive attitude is something that we take right down to ourselves, you know, that we will extract and extract from ourselves, pushing ourselves, Mm. and then we'll literally give up and collapse, like turning away from agriculture, turning away Mm. from meat and saying, I don't want a part of that. And we'll just collapse on a sofa or indulge in some kind of destructive Mm -hmm. habit because then we don't have to engage. We don't have to be conscious. We don't have to look at nuance. It's less painful mm-hmm. that way. Whereas actually what we need to be is conscious in ourselves to say, actually, I'm, I'm pushing too much mm-hmm. now. OK, 
okay, I need to rest, I need to do something else, I need to direct my attention elsewhere. It's the same kind of, it feels like the same culture running through how we are with ourselves, how we are with our families, how we are with our friends, how we are with nature, how we are with, mm -hmm. you know, um, the, the resources that we have in the world. It, it just feels like the same attitudes for everything. I see parallels. Yeah, that's there. a beautiful observation. Everything is fractal because we are of nature, <laughs> right? We will find the patterns yeah. that we, that we create, you know, recreated in us. Uh, yeah, for sure. Completely. And I feel like in your, you know, having read your book, you said, the other thing I wanted to say was you said earlier about, you know, your experience of loss and of death personally mm -hmm. in your life and how you had to rebuild that. And you've been able to kind of process that within yourself and connect it to your work. And that comes through so strongly mm. in the writing in your book. And it's such a gift to be able to, take the experiences that you've had, the negative, what people call negative mm -hmm. in quotes experiences, and to turn them into something that can drive you forward and can reflect on something that you're really passionate totally. about. Totally. And the writing in the writing in the book is is I mean the, the book's really practical. But it's so beautiful too, and that really that kind of sense of you taking that in and processing it really comes across. Thank you. Yeah, I was I wrote that book when I was in my grief process, and I think that that's been so um, that's such a great metaphor in general for death and for grief and for mourning and for the quote unquote negative as you call it because or you named it because that is so essential to the recycling of energy you know, to, um, the creative process. I think of grief as a forge, you know, where new energy is, is wrought. And it's the same with, you know, it's the same in nature. Death begets life, life begets death. Right. And so being afraid of, um, of loss or of death or, or not, as you say, in our emotional process, we'll, we will refuse to grieve or we will refuse to rest or we will refuse to do whatever seems dull or painful, but that is necessary, right? To bring, to bring out the next thing. Uh, yeah. Hey there, thank you for being a listener of the Ancestral Kitchen podcast. It means so much to Allison and I when you post a review on Apple or Spotify or share about the podcast in your stories or send us a message and let us know what it means to you, which is hopefully something good. You can also sponsor the podcast through our Patreon account and help Rob buy weird gadgets to edit out my coughs and microphone bumps in the background. We have a variety of different levels you can choose from and a bunch of different benefits you can enjoy, ranging from additional interviews to video content and downloadable goodies. Check it out at patreon.com slash ancestral kitchen podcast. Andrea, do you want to ask any specific butchery questions or shall I move on to talking about fermentation? No, I think for the specific butchery questions, I would point to people the either to the book yeah. or to her courses. Yeah. Because you have a lot of really great courses. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Right. And I think, yeah, no, you've got, like, if somebody wants just to make, like, you have the the koji charcuterie, for instance, or semi-dry sausages, or somebody could get your entire bundle of the mm -hmm. charcuterie. Yeah, so the whole, the whole class goes um, the how all the way from whole hog butchery to, yeah, using every scrap to make different bits yeah. of charcuterie. And the only whole animal butchery course I have online is, is hog. Uh, but it is a bit transferable, I would say, to other small animals. Um, so yeah, I encourage us mm -hmm. at the fermentation school. And yeah. So if... Yeah, so I think... I think, Allison, let's just have okay. people look there yeah, so for the details I wanted because to rem we, we could ask her a thousand questions about that. I wanted to remind <laughs> listeners that um, they have a 10% discount on those courses through the podcast. So there's there's a range of them. You know, there's the, the whole hog butchery and then there's smaller ones broken down. And then there's the charcuterie course, the large course, which involves, kind of covers everything. 
um, and you will get 10% off any of those courses. Like Meredith said, head to the fermentation school. And we're, I'd like to move on to talking about meat fermentation now, a little okay. bit, which is topical. I think that um, we've talked quite a lot on the podcast about fermentation, you know, about fermented drinks, fermented veg, fermented sourdough. You know, not an episode goes by where we don't talk about fermentation. Mm -hmm. And most listeners have done some form of fermentation, but it's probably vegetables or it's probably drinks or sourdough. Um, meat fermentation feels like a kind of a different ball game. And yet it is such a strong part of traditional fermentation practice mm -hmm. in ancestral cultures. People find it scary. People find it more challenging, a bit more of a kind of a leap than just, you know, chopping up some sauerkraut, mm -hmm. putting it with some salt and mixing it with their hands. So what I would like you to do um, is to talk about why meat fermentation is such a, a great thing to do and to try to pass on to the listeners, you know, how it how it can be approached so it doesn't seem daunting mm -hmm. and where they should start if they want to get into it. Sure, yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're absolutely right that it feels... I, I so often hear people say, oh, something feels natural to me about fermenting vegetables or drinks, but I feel like I need help or companionship or guidance when it comes to fermenting meats. And I would say, yeah, I understand that um, for sure. Although I would say if you are, if you are a sourdough maker, <laughs> sourdough is harder than meat curing and fermentation. <laughs> um Oh, yay, we're yeah, halfway so, there. <laughs> sourdough is so dynamic. You know, it's so, um, yeah, it's so much more of, I think, a relationship with a community of microbes than even making a salami is. And, and while, and I, I don't want, I don't say that to like debase the making of salami as like a living food. I just think that there's, the parameters are so much cleaner. Um, whereas sourdough is, is trickier. Um, so when, you know, sour donation was a thing during COVID, I was laughing because I was like, wow, if everyone can do this, everyone can cure a ham, <laughs> you know, it's just a psychological block. And so um, the thing I've, first of all, I would say in terms of why to do it is because if we truly want to make thrifty and delicious use of entire animals, and stop prioritizing the middle meats and the steaks and the quick cooking grillable cuts over the rest of the carcass, then some sort of preservation is necessary. And I learned that very quickly as I began butchering and managing a butcher shop and trying to merchandise highly perishable foods to a clientele that did not yet understand how to eat the entire animal is that, oh yeah, we were gonna have to do some salting. We were gonna have to do some preservation. And that's what our ancestors also encountered, right? And that's what bore forth all of the traditions around the world for, you know, braising meat in fat or salting meat or making sausages, um, et cetera. And so I teach, you know, charcuterie, which is the French term for all different kinds of cured meats, but that doesn't mean it's a strictly European um, practice. Everywhere you go in the world, there will be some iteration of what I teach in my courses. It might just be spiced differently or it might use a different species of animal. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It was very important in ancestry. And what I strive to do in my teaching is to give people ratios and parameters that are known control points in food safety so that you understand the science as well as the technique. And that way you, you have a rich playground for experimentation inside of what you can, you know, inside of confidence that you're gonna stay safe. And I would say, the, the other thing I would say is that there are very few microbes that will grow in meat ferments that are deadly. Um, botulism is the concern, um, which is a, also a concern in vegetable fermentation, right? And when we know the parameters and we know the control points, then there's really no need to be, cons you know, concerned. 
Um, so it's just a matter of starting and learning those parameters. Um, and my courses, you know, a lot of, I find a lot of butchery education, a lot of circuitry education is quite vague. You won't know why certain ingredients are included, or you'll, you'll see wildly ranging ratios of salt and you won't know why there's a range, but I am very careful to always explain the reason for the ingredients and the reason for the ratios being what they are based on the science. Um, because that's just how my mind works. I've always been the, you know, as the kid that was always asking why, why, why to every single answer um, until I got down to the very base of it. Um, and that's not to say that I know everything there is to know about curing meats but I, and, or that humans even know everything that's going on inside of a curing sausage. But I think it's, it's about taking the best of science, right, and what science has giving, given us and then using it to liberate ourselves in a way from what, you know, we thought our limitations were. Yeah, I, I completely resonate with that. I have always asked why yeah. as well and I feel like having the science then just gives me a baseline understanding from which I can go okay so how do I apply that to yes. this how do I apply that to this cut how do I apply that to this um personally the only meat fermentation kind of um, processing I've done is making bacon uh -huh. and I haven't gone beyond that where would you suggest that you know Bacon seems to be the place to start, but where would you suggest to, to move on yeah. from that into That was the one the piece I didn't answer. Yeah, I think dry dry curing of mus whole muscles like bacon or hams is a really great place to start. And it's you know, it's pretty versatile. So you can get you can start out salt curing whole muscles like bacon and then cooking them, because bacon is a cooked product. Um, which isn't technically a fermentation process, or you could salt cure muscles and move into hanging them to ferment and cure. And with whole muscles, it's going to be a really light sort of yeast dominant fermentation. Um, there's probably some molds going on as well. Um, and it's not really until you get into ground meat fermentation, like sausages and salamis, that you really get into um, bacterial fermentation or a really um, pronounced fermentation process where you need really, um, yeah, you need climate control essentially for that, right? So I think the easiest things, easiest things are gonna be, as you said, salt curing a whole muscle. And, and that's something that I encourage people to do if, if they just know that this is not gonna be something that they get into then I at least encourage people to understand how to salt cure bacon and hams in order to produce their own lunch meats or um, et cetera, because of the nitrate question and because of um, yeah. the concerns around that. And so I think, yeah, if you're going to start and end with something that that is approachable, that's the thing to do. So of your courses at the fermentation school, which one covers that whole cut um there's one called dry curing meats or dry curing i think and then the making bacon one is also uh is also there so so yeah i think dry curing would be good because the bacon is included in there it just doesn't take you all the way through the cooking process um but it does include you know here's how you would cook it, it just i just tell you how you would cook it and then i also tell you how you would take a whole muscle that's been salt cured and move it into a fermentation process. Wonderful. Okay. Bring to mind your kitchen. Now imagine it full of expert women fermenters ready to teach you everything they know. Vegetables, salumi, drinks, kefir, dairy, sourdough, vinegar, koji and much more. The Fermentation School is just that, online, in your kitchen, whenever you want. World-leading female educators sharing their incredible experience in video courses that will guide you step-by-step step through your next fermentation project. Ancestral Kitchen Podcast has teamed up with the school to offer its 60-plus courses to you at a 10% discount. When you say yes, you'll also be supporting the work Andrea and I do as you skill up. 
go check out their courses via the link in the show notes. I'm betting there's something there that's going to get you really excited. Happy fermenting. You mentioned nitrates and and I wanted to talk about nitrates. Mm -hmm. I have, I get a lot of questions about nitrates and um, just this summer I went to South Wales and I bought some ham um, in the city of Carmarthen, which there's one um, producer there who is still producing air dried ham in the same way that it's been produced there for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And... um, it was a wonderful, wonderful ham, and I talked to the guy about it. And I remember when I um, posted about the ham on social media, the ingredients included nitrate, mm-hmm. and lots of people asked me about it. Now, having read your book, I understand a bit more about nitrates, but I'm still getting lots of questions about them. Could you explain mm-hmm. to listeners? what the deal is with nitrates. Absolutely. I've done a lot of research on this because I also was very curious when I started and get a lot of questions about it. And so the primary purpose of using nitrates in meat curing is to inhibit botulism toxin. And so I'm sure you've talked about this on your show before, but it's uh, botulism comes from a spore. It's a toxin produced by the spore of Clostridium botulinum, which is a bacterium. And what nitrate does, or specifically nitrite, sodium nitrite, is that when it come, when the botulinum bacterium comes into contact with the nitrite, it forms a protective membrane around itself um, because it doesn't like the conditions that the nitrate poses and it doesn't want to die, right? Um, so the, the bacterium will form this protective cyst around itself. And that means that it won't be killed, but it also means that it won't reproduce and therefore it won't be making the spore that will be making the toxin that will produce botulism. Um, And so when you're eating a piece of cured meat that's been cured with a nitrite, you're actually consuming insisted botulinum bacterium and they're just going through your digestive system and you're pooping them back out into the soil where botulinum is found. Um, And so it's very useful for that reason because botulism toxin will paralyze a human from the waist up and it's very deadly and it's colorless and flavorless and odorless. And so you can't detect it in your ferments without laboratory analysis. Um, And the thing about botulism is that it thrives in slightly acidic environments without oxygen, which are absolutely the conditions of a piece of meat that's being fermented, right? We're trying to drive down the pH in order to eliminate a bunch of other pathogens or um, bacteriums that we don't want and also create a stable environment for the further curing and drying of that meat. Um, And inside of a piece of meat, whether it's a huge muscle or whether it's a curing sausage, it is an anaerobic environment without oxygen. And so the concern is that even if you start at a, you know, condition where botulism couldn't thrive, you are creating a condition temporarily where botulism could be an issue. And because bacteria multiply every 20 minutes, you don't have to have that condition for very long in order for botulism to be a concern. Um, And so it is important, particularly in meats that are fermented and never cooked, to use a nitrite. And so in the case of that ham, that's exactly what happened. That ham was probably salt cured. It included regular sea salt or kosher salt and a sodium nitrate or sodium nitrite. Um, and it was never cooked. It was just hung up after salt curing until it reached a shelf stable water activity. Um, and so in the case of that particular nitrite, it it was probably cured with sodium nitrate, which is a more complex form of nitrogen that through microbial interaction breaks down into nitrite, which then interacts further with microbes to stabilize the product. And then that nitrite is further metabolized by microbes into nitric oxide. So when you eat a piece of meat that's been cured with a nitrite or a nitrate and it's never been cooked, you're likely consuming, you know, mostly nitric oxide, which your body produces when you look at the sun. It's good for you. (laughs) Um, One thing that will be produced through nitrogenase, so basically the breaking down of nitrate into nitrite and nitrite into nitric oxide, is very, very trace amounts of nitrosamine. Um, Nitrosamine is produced when a nitrite is heated 
And so through the heat, this very small amounts of heat that are produced in those microbial metabolic reactions, you do get trace amounts of nitrosamine, which is a free radical carcinogen. Um, so you will see a lot of cured meats that are also um, in the ingredient label is uh, ascorbic acid or vitamin C is included. And that is um, an antioxidant that binds to any trace free radicals um, to stabilize them in the product. Now, what I know from research is that the, the amount of nitrosamine in meat products cured with a nitrate that are never cooked is so minuscule. It hasn't been shown to really impact human health on a large scale unless you're eating a ridiculous amount of cured meats, right? Like I'm talking about 20 pounds in a sitting, which no one does. They're meant to be enjoyed as okay. delicacies, right? Um, but the issue with nitrate in meat curing is that when you cure a piece of meat with a nitrate and you cook it, you produce large amounts of nitrosamine. Um, and the problem is that regulation, in order to standardize safety across production processes, uh, regulation, particularly in the United States, requires the use of a nitrate in any ready-to-eat meat product, and that includes bacon, hot dogs, um, cured sausages, and hams or deli, deli cuts. And so that means that... Um, yeah, you're going to be eating a lot of free radical nitrosamine if you're eating mass-produced cured meats. Um, and so what I, the reason that that is so important to understand is that if you, want, if you want to approach your own production of cured meats and you have those parameters, we know that cooking food at boiling point or more for 20 minutes or longer kills botulism toxin. And so if I'm carrying a piece of meat at home and I know that I'm going to cook it, I can omit the nitrite from the process and therefore avoid the nitrosamine. But when you're buying on the market, even if you're buying um, a cut that says uncured, um, what that means is it's illegal to, to cure meat and sell it commercially without a nitrite. And typically what those companies that are using the terms uncured are doing is using a natural form of sodium nitrite via celery juice powder. Um, but the fact of the matter is that it's still sodium nitrite and when it's cooked, it's still producing nitrosamine. And so this myth that it's uncured or that it doesn't include a nitrate is, is, uh, is problematic, right? Because, because the nitrosamine is still present. So the celery juice powder is just a natural mm -hmm. form of that. That's right. Yeah. And what a lot of butchers will say is that because the celery juice is a natural product, it's hard to specify the exact amount of nitrite that's in a lot of that celery juice powder. And so you may actually end up with more nitrosamine in a product that's cured with a natural celery juice extract than you would be with a product that's cured with a synthetic sodium nitrite. That's not a reason to not use the celery juice extract, and I have used it in my own curing. It's perfectly, it works perfectly fine. And if you're a person who really is a believer in naturally produced items, I completely understand that. Um, but that is one thing to note, uh, is that sometimes those manufacturers of the, the vegetable celery juice extract will have you using more than you actually need in order to produce a safe curing environment just to ensure that the natural product delivers the nitrate that's needed. Wow. Okay. So my takeaways from that are that, you know, if I'm doing curing at home, then if I'm going to cook my product, then I'm, I know that I don't need to use a nitrate product in it. Um, but if I'm not going to cook it, then I need to. And really, just like the message of this podcast, I should be staying away from industry produce, produced kind of meat products because all of them are having to use nitrates and if then we go on to cook those products we are really causing ourselves perhaps a problem that we would want to avoid yeah. i mean if you and and there are obviously caveats to all of that like if you're cooking for example a mortadella at home you're probably going to be poaching it and it's not going to be cooked at boiling point and i would put in a nitrite and it would probably produce nitrosamine okay. right so there's a little there's always gray areas there that you know taking the courses or reading the book or understanding you know, the parameters and the boundaries around them is important. And I think also, you know, if you're buying cured meats that are industrially produced that are never cooked, then especially if they're also cured with ascorbic acid, then you can feel a little bit better, yeah. right? About, um, 
about it. But yeah, thinking about the role of cooking and the level of heat in the process is really important and it can help you uh, create, you know, just make more informed choices. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because I know that lots of people will be waiting for that bit um, for you to talk about them and you've, you've made it very, very clear. Andrea, do you have questions about fermentation or nitrates or anything that Meredith's covered? Well, two, two things really, I mean, uh, yeah, of course, that's, but two things really jumped out at me when you were talking, Meredith. One is one of the guests we had, um, <clears throat> I think last year was Nicola von oh, nice. Nyman, who mm -hmm. wrote Defending Beef. Yeah. And we both love that book. And she noted in there that a lot of studies that looked at people's health who ate meat, and I know that both of you are very familiar with them as former vegetarians, um, she noted that a lot of them conflated a heavy consumption of processed commercial cured meats with mm. meat eating generally. And she found that when you did more analysis of the studies that a lot of the health issues people had could be isolated to people who were eating high quantities of these commercially um, yeah. cured meats. So I find that interesting given what you just shared. And <clears throat> the other thing that comes to mind is, well, we have the best listeners in the world <laughs> of any podcast ever, super, super engaged and always involved and so I know they're thinking the same thing as I'm thinking when you're talking about oh botulism and all these things um I feel like with there is a tendency in the broader culture when we encounter those things to say oh yep nope okay I'm never going down that road I'm just gonna go over here and eat this grocery store thing because I don't want to mess with anything and I feel like um, similar to the death mm -hmm. question, the answer is not to look away, but to seek out wise counselors and someone like you, like I can take your course, even though I'm not your neighbor, I can essentially sit with you and have you show me or read your book <laughs> as I am doing, um, have you show me something. And so I would, as I know, Allison would also encourage people instead of looking away and saying, oh no, this could be bad. I would encourage all of us to take that as an invitation to go deeper into it and to understand the mystery a little bit more if we can and participate more in these solutions. Beautifully said. Lathis, you've promised that you will read a bit of your book for patrons of the podcast, which I... There's one particular bit that I absolutely fell in love with. So if it's good with you, we will close our main interview there and go over to the Patreon feed and listen to you share more. Before we finish up, let people know where they can find you and your work. Sure. Um, it's been really great speaking with you all about all this. Um, and I am mostly at this point my my content is available at the fermentation school i'm taking a sabbatical from teaching in-person workshops to try to figure out yeah where most of my energies need to go um so the fermentation school.com and i am also reimagining my instagram account to try and understand how to make it most useful but that is ethical meat book uh, and my website has some resources and ebooks on it, and that's ethicalmeatbook.com. Great, thank you. And for the fermentation school, listeners can go in and just make a free account, and there's kind of previews of the courses that a lot of instructors, and I know you've done that on your courses, so you can get a taste of um, what Meredith is offering in each of the courses by doing that. Thank you ever so much for your time and your wonderful expertise, and. Um, your wonderful speaking and, and able to explain to everyone. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Thank you.